Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Janice Carlisle, professor of English, talking about why we celebrate Charles Dickens on the occasion of his 200th birthday. I'm glad to have this opportunity to talk about Charles Dickens on the occasion of the 200th anniversary of his birthday. But I should say at the outset that if Dickens were still with us, he would probably be mocking all the excitement that has occurred about this particular event. And I can guess that that would be the case because in the 1860s, he wrote an essay called Birthday Celebrations, in which he makes a great deal of fun of a celebration of Shakespeare's birthday in a country town. Everything about the event is absurd including the fact that Shakespeare is completely lost in all of the ways in which the townspeople have decided to commemorate his birth, including the silly sonnet written by an aspiring provincial poet and an incompetent portrait painted of Shakespeare, one that's completely unlike the existing portraits and is distinctive only because, as Dickens says, the head is so much swollen. If Dickens made fun of the impulse to honor literary giants by marking their birthdays long after their first occasions, why should we say happy birthday to Dickens? How should we say it? I think there are two reasons why we should be celebrating this event, and they are very much like the reasons that one continues to celebrate Shakespeare's birthdays. One is Dickens' popularity with his original audience and his continuing popularity to this day. And the other is the uniqueness of his literary imagination. Very early in Dickens' career, he was called the inimitable, and that's precisely what he is, the novelist who cannot be imitated. He is like no other. And I would like to say why I think that's so, but first I'd like to say a few words about Dickens' popularity. To do that, I have to explain that the word popularity in the Victorian period had a different meaning from the one that's current in our own. In one meaning, to be popular was to be of the people, and the word people meant specifically the working classes, the relatively uneducated, manual laborers, the poor, the disfranchised. Dickens was concerned about the very poor because he knew that the safety net that the Victorians had developed for them was cruel, harsh, inadequate, and dehumanizing. That's why we get a story of a character like Oliver Twist, who is in a workhouse and who holds out his bowl famously to ask for more, please, or a story like about a character like Tiny Tim, who is not going to survive unless someone comes forth with some money to cure his ills. This is also why Scrooge, in A Christmas Carol, says memorably that the poor should take themselves off to the workhouses and treadmills that were provided for them. Now, Scrooge, we know, will be converted to charity, and that was, for Dickens, one of the ways in which social ills could be solved, perhaps to him the main way. But his sympathy with the poor was unusual um, in the Victorian period when poverty was thought of as a moral failing. Dickens understood that that was not the case. But to be popular in Dickens' time also meant what it means in ours. A novelist is popular 
if his or her books sell many copies to a large audience. And Dickens' very large audience was distinctive because it was so diverse. He's arguably the first and last novelist whose fiction appealed to both the highly educated and the illiterate. We know, for instance, that the readers of Pickwick Papers, his first novel, um, came from the high and the low alike. We know that because we have anecdotes, for instance, of a judge being caught reading the novel as he presided over a trial, or the story of a young boy, a future clergyman, who was reading Pickwick Papers in church and who had to dive under the pew because he was laughing so loudly and was after that dragged in disgrace from the church. We also have stories of groups of poor people who would pool their pence so that they could buy tea and one copy of the current Dickens serial. They would then gather so that those who could not read could listen to the story being read to them by someone who could read. In other words, the reading of a Dickens novel was a communal event um, in this case, as was also in the case in many middle-class families. Now, Dickens' popularity in his own time was, of course, commercial popularity. He was a highly successful novelist, and in the case of Pickwick Papers, for instance, there were all sorts of what we could call tie-ins, um, Pickwick hats, Pickwick mugs, Pickwick canes, and coats. And this is, I think, a way in which Dickens continues to live on and be popular today. And in that sense, popularity means having a presence in popular culture, as Dickens certainly does, in the mass media of television, movies, and the internet. In the case of Great Expectations, for instance, Dickens lives on in an episode of South Park, a movie featuring Gwyneth Paltrow, a dating service, and a maternity store, both of the latter unfortunately called Great Expectations. Clearly, the people who titled those establishments didn't read the novel. But the wide audience that Dickens had also lives on in an organization called the Dickens Project, an international research consortium that is based in Santa Cruz, California. And the Dickens Project puts on every year a one-week celebration of Dickens in late July or early August, in which all the participants study one novel for the entire week, and that is from 8.30 a.m. in the morning, and if you have the stamina, to 12 p.m. at night. The participants are diverse, as Dickens' original readers were. They include graduate students and faculty members, high school teachers, Dickens fans um, from all walks of life, as they say, Dickens fans who know the novel better than the scholars do, and members of an elder hostel group who come each year. One year, the participants ranged in age from 8 to over 80, and they were all joined together by their affection for Dickens' fiction. This summer, the Dickens novel being studied is Bleak House, and I suggest if you're interested, you would be more than welcome. All you have to do is Google the Dickens Project and apply for a place, which you would be certainly given. The second reason that I think we ought to be celebrating Dickens' birthday is one aspect of his literary genius. 
the sheer verbal energy, the inventiveness of his language. I have been teaching Dickens, um, as I can personally testify, for more decades than I would like to admit. And every time I do, I find something new and surprising and delightful in novels that I've read again and again and again. Dickens never fails me. But I'd like to share two examples from Great Expectations of this particular quality of Dickens' genius. Uh, Great Expectations is the story of a young boy, an orphan named Pip, who grows up in the house of a blacksmith on the marshes in Kent. He's a boy who first has great ambitions and then expectations of great wealth and happiness. And this is an autobiographical novel. The older Pip is telling us about his younger self. And in giving some examples of the language of great expectations, I certainly won't give away the plot because that is, I think, one of the great pleasures of Dickens. But I do want to stress how often moments in his fiction are wildly imaginative, funny, sad, touching, beautiful, sometimes all these things at once. As early as the second paragraph in the novel, we're given some indication of these qualities. In this paragraph, Pip, about six, is in a churchyard looking at the family tombstone and at the inscriptions on the tombstone to his mother and his father. At that point, he refers to the way in which his brothers have been commemorated. To five little stone lozenges, each about a foot and a half long, which were arranged in a neat row beside their grave and were sacred to the memory of five little brothers of mine, who gave up trying to get a living exceedingly early in that universal struggle. I'm indebted for a belief I religiously entertained that they had all been born on their backs with their hands in their trouser pockets and had never taken them out in this state of existence. Now, clearly, Dickens is taking a cliché and having some fun with it, the universal struggle for existence. But Pip also imagines what no one else could imagine, but what seems perfectly appropriate, that his brothers were born fully dressed, lying on their backs, as they would, of course, be doing, actually, in their graves, and that their hands are in their trouser pockets because the struggle to survive is so hard that they don't even want to try. Now, Dickens, at times, is accused of exaggerating, and I would like to point out at this point that there is a churchyard in Kent in a small village called Cooling that does have a gravestone surrounded by small lozenges lying horizontally on the ground to represent children who have died in youth. And this gravestone has 12 lozenges around it to mark the deaths of 12 children. So in this case, Dickens is actually being moderate. He's reining in reality so that his imagination can show forth. I would also like to be able to read the entire Christmas dinner scene at the beginning of Great Expectations, when Pip is served, quote, the scaly tips of fowls and those obscure corners of pork about which the pig had least reason to be proud, unquote. But I will confine myself to talking about one 
other very, very short passage at the beginning of Great Expectations. And I want to do that to stress that Dickens, who is often accused of being only sentimental, was in many ways a very hard-eyed novelist. And his fiction, while it speaks of emotion, often has a hard edge to it. Great Expectations is a very funny book, but it's also a book full of fear and longing and shame and abuse and humiliation. And as I say, this particular passage gives us a good example of that. Pip, as a young boy, is imagining what it might be like to be out on the marshes on a winter's night, and here is what he thinks. It was a dry, cold night, and the wind blew keenly, and the frost was white and hard. A man would die tonight of lying out on the marshes, I thought. And then I looked up at the stars and considered how awful it would be for a man to turn his face up to them as he froze to death and see no help or pity in all the glittering multitude. Dickens asks his readers here to see what Pip is seeing, imagine what Pip is imagining. But he also creates a complicated layering of past and present on each other, since the grown-up Pip is telling this story by representing both his younger self and the older man that the younger self conjures up, the man who's dying out on the marshes. This is, I think, an extremely quiet and moving image of despair and longing, of knowing that there is help and pity out there, but knowing that they are too far away and too indifferent to be offered. A man who could write like that, I think, deserves a birthday celebration 200 years after his death. In his will, Charles Dickens said that he wanted no monuments raised in his honor. Rather, he said, quote, I rest my claims to remembrance upon my published works, unquote. For that reason, I think the kind of birthday celebration that would have made Dickens happy would be to see someone pick up one of his books and laugh and cry over it and be riveted by its story and delighted by its language, as his original readers often were. So instead of raising a glass to Charles Dickens this year, and I think every year on February 7th, I propose that we take time to read some of his fiction instead, knowing for certain that if we do, we will enjoy whatever we read. Thank you. That was Janice Carlyle, professor of English, talking about the enduring legacy of Charles Dickens.